Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek, uh, coordinator for adult programs at the Pratt Library. Uh, we are honored tonight to have two former Baltimore Sun writers, Rafael Alvarez, uh, whose newest book, Tales from the Holy Land, I highly recommend. Uh, he's also a writer for the HBO drama The Wire, and Cheryl Tan, editor and contributor of Singapore Noir, who is also the author of The Tiger in the Kitchen and a native of Singapore. We're very glad to have both of you tonight. Thank you. that maybe didn't work out so well. And I'll just say, Ed's no longer at the Sun. You can name the dots as you will. Um, and Cheryl started uh, as an intern in the Ann Arundel County Bureau, uh, which has everything in it from the hoitsy toits white shoes of Annapolis to the you know long stretch of Ritchie Highway and nothing but hamburger joints and car lots. Uh, and then places that actually are reminiscent of the story Cheryl wrote for this book, uh, places like Beale Island, places where there's still a very strong um, fishing industry. Uh, I believe Ann Arundel County has more coastline uh, along the Chesapeake Bay than any other, um, more water coastline than any of the other counties. So from there, Cheryl uh, did very well and was brought on to the, we're, we're talking about when the Sun had many sections, its own Maryland section, and we don't need to go into um, what it is today. Uh, there are folks here that remember when we had seven bureaus around the world that reported directly to 501 North Calvary Street. Um, I don't know about Cheryl, but I can say that I feel I experienced sort of the last gasp of, of a great newspaper. Uh, most of those parts were in place when Cheryl landed in the mid to late 90s. They were beginning to be dismantled. Uh, but enough about that. Uh, she's now a very successful author. Um, this is uh, her first book, was Tiger in the Kitchen, a memoir of food and family. Um, this would be her second uh, book and I'm gonna let her speak a little bit about herself, tell a little bit about Singapore in general, 
and she's going to read uh, a section from someone else's story that, that she admires and can sort of give a context of, of Singapore um, as a place much different from Baltimore, but perhaps with some of uh, some commonality. So I'll give you Cheryl's hand. I'm very excited to, to be back here. Um, I once heard Oprah say that Baltimore grew her up, and, um, and that's actually exactly how I feel, because Baltimore was my first big job, uh, my first job, really, full-time job, and uh, I learned so much when I was here. I was here for six years. I worked at the Sun for six years, um, and I'm still close to many people I met at the Sun, and I adore all of them, including as much as I can. Um, so I, uh, so I really, really was looking forward to coming back here and to, to come back here and be in this room is um is incredibly exciting for me. Um, Ralphie asked me right before this, um, what is what is what is uh, Singapore like compared with uh, Baltimore, and uh, and uh, they're they're two very different cities. Um, even though I've called both of them home uh, for long stretches of time, and um, well, Singapore is a small island on the tip of the Malay Peninsula. And uh, if you haven't been there, the food is amazing. Uh, one of the first food stories I wrote about Singapore was for the Baltimore Sun. And um, the food is, uh, you know, like Chinese, Indian, Malay food mixed together with like British influence. Um, and uh, it's very densely populated and tiny. You can drive from one end of the island to the other in like 90 minutes. Um, it's packed with really rich people. The country now has a, 26, a bar with a $26,000 cocktail. Um, <laughs> it's true. It comes with the waitress. But it also has, you know, ordinary people um, who, uh, you know, who work, have to work very hard to put food on the table. Um, you know, and it also, it has a people of different races. The expat population is booming. Um, and when you have, like, you know, all these different types of people from all over the world, um, all these different cultures, different, um, you know, ethnicities and, you know, different um, economic stratas, you're, you, you're going to get some dark stories. Um, and uh, it always uh, frustrated me that whenever I brought up Singapore, I've lived here for um, 20 years now. I came here for college. I went to Northwestern and I moved to, I moved to Maryland after that. Um, first place I lived was Odenton, actually, so not Baltimore. <laughs> Odenton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right on the rail line. You were saying you lived there 20 years and right. came here, and how are the cities com uh, comparable? Right. Whenever I mentioned Singapore to anyone, um, people would always say one of a few things. They would mention caning, uh, strict laws. Uh, is it true you can't chew gum there? Um, it's not true, actually. You can chew gum, you just can't buy it there. <laughs> but you, if you if you have like a dental problem and you require sort of like special medical gum, you can get the doctor. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Gum dispensaries. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, the pharmacy. Um, yeah. But um. But so I was always, you know, I was always frustrated with this because Singapore is very complex. You know, it's 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 fascinating place. It's a huge city. Um, Packed with people. Um, of course, crime occurs. Not as much as in other places, like Baltimore, perhaps. But um, but you know, when it does happen, it happens pretty spectacularly. Um, there's a there's a church in a downtown Singapore that whenever my family passes it, someone will mention the word curry because uh, in the 1980s, the church cook killed her husband and chopped him up and turned him into curry. Um, and she was never convicted, so she's a very smart woman. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, when, when, when stuff, bad stuff does happen, it, it, it happens spectacularly, and we talk about it for decades. Um, and so I always wanted to sort of 
bring this side of uh, my country to the world and uh, kind of tell people, well, no, you know, we've got bad guys too. Um, people do bad things. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the noir stories that you read could very well take place in Singapore. Um, so when I happened to be at a book fair a few years ago, and um, someone introduced me to the publisher of uh, this series of books. and um, Johnny? Johnny is Temple. he really as handsome as Laura Levin says he is? He is. He's very handsome. And he's a rock band. He's like the coolest publisher out there. Yeah, she calls him the most handsome man in the world. Oh, yeah. 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 Don't tell him. Look him up. Look him up. <laughs> <laughs> so when, I, when someone introduced me to me, um, it was actually the mystery writer Esther Roseanne who has a lovely story in here. Um, and I said, well, you know, how come you've done you know, all these cities? You've done you know, Baltimore, you've done Brooklyn, uh, you've done Miami. Um, why not Singapore? And he said, well, I don't know any writers from Singapore. And my friend SJ said, well, you do now. And that's literally how this book started. So if you want to write a book, go to lots of parties and no SJ Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> and so from there, the story was kind of born. And um, basically, it's, uh, these anthologies are you know, generally about 14 stories or so. Um, and each uh, story is set in a different part of the city. Um, and so the, the, no two stories can be in the same area. And, um, and you want to have like a mix of like people who know Singapore really well, but also you know, people who are like the best writers of Singapore. And um, this was another thing that I really wanted to do. Um, I had grown up reading all these writers whom I loved. Um, and, I, and three of them on this, in this collection have actually won the Singapore Literature Prize, and, um, which is the Pulitzer Prize of Singapore. And so they're, they're really, they're like the Philip Roths and the Ann Holmes of Singapore. And, um, and so, you know, I really wanted to showcase some of these people because they'd never been published here. Um, and I always wondered why Singlet never made the crossover. So, um, so I wanted to, you know, bring something to the Western audience and, and show people a little bit of what I grew up with. Um, so that's a huge part of it as well. Cool. Um, the story you wrote is about uh, fish farming or fish harvesting. And it reminded me in many ways of, of Smith Island. Mm. Have you ever been to Smith Island? Yes. And uh, particularly how they um, have shanties, crab shanties, and uh, what? how old were you when you, Kelong, is that the proper yeah. website? Would you tell the folks what a Kelong is, the role it plays in your story, and, and when? how old were you when you first saw one or your experience with one? Um, well, I grew up on the, the far eastern part of the island, and so if you've ever visited Singapore, you've been there because the airport is there, and there's pretty much not very much else. Um, and it's uh, and it's basically the airport and like an old like fishing village, and um, and I grew up not far from this village. So when I was a teenager, I used to take the bus and like you know go there if I was having a fight with my mom or something, and I would go there and sit there and look out at the water and go, God, I need to get off this island. <laughs> and uh, but out on the in this water, there's like a slice of water between Singapore and Malaysia. Um, and uh, on the slice of water, there are these little, if you look out, there are these little houses on stilts. And you can't really see them sometimes because these are really long stilts. And the stilts are very carefully constructed to trap fish. And so these, you usually have a few guys living on these, uh, on these stilted houses. And they're called kilongs. And um, they basically kind of pass their days waiting for fish to come in. And then, you know, they net them in. And then they bring them by little boats to like the mainland, um, usually about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes away. And uh, to the big Chinese restaurants where like, you know, that's where you'll see like the big fish, like in the fish tanks. Um, so I, w I always looked out at these kilongs and I wondered what life was like on these kilongs because, 
you know, you're out there in the middle of the water. Um, if you look at any pictures of Singapore, what you see is like the skyline. You know, you see this gleaming sort of metropolis. And, um, and these kilons could not be further from that. You know, it's, it's not gleaming, for sure. Um, it's like a whole bunch of wooden stilts around like an old rickety house. And um, if you have nothing to do all day, you know, what happens? So I kind of thought, well, what if something does happen on Kilong? What does la mean? You use it about 300 times in the story. And okay. I want to ask you as, uh, as a writer, if you felt you were taking a chance to sprinkle so many foreign wo Singapore words into a story in English for an English audience. Yeah, that was, a, that was something I discussed with my writers a fair bit too. Um, and it's funny, actually, one of the writers who uses the most English here is an American writer. Um, S.J. Rosanne did a lot of research. She fell in love with Singlish, which is the patois that we speak in Singapore. And it's kind of this pigeon that's like a that's like a mix of like English, Malay, and Mandarin. And um, sometimes, the, even though the words are English, the, the sentences don't make sense because uh, the sentence construction is Mandarin. Um, for example, like a phrase that we use a lot is, uh, you ask me, I ask who, which is like a very Mandarin phrase. Like, you know, in Mandarin you would say, like if you ask me a question, I don't know the answer. I would be like, ni wo And, um, you know, and in English, it's you ask me, I ask who. And so that's typically how it works. Like Malay, um, uses uh if, if you want to emphasize something um like there's a lot of something uh you'll say it twice um instead of you know saying the plural mm -hmm. so that pops up sometimes too like instead of um you know you know cat you might say cat cat um, so, so malay is the um, indigenous language of the island yes or uh, is there a, is there a dialect of malay that's specifically sing no, it's a uh, the before before the British set up a port there in 1898. It was a Malay fishing village, so Malay is sort of the um, was the first language. They broke there. away from there. Yeah. And so, what does law mean? So, <laughs> so law is basically uh, it's been described as like the Canadian A. It's oh. tacked, it's tacked <laughs> onto sentences for emphasis or like you know just like right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. or like man. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> it's all of those words, words rolled into one. And, and how ancient is uh, the Kalong uh, approach to fishing? Is Does it go as far back as can be recorded history? Yeah, it goes back a very long time. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long, but the sad part about it is that it's disappearing. Um, right now, there are only a handful left in Singapore. And so um, when I was thinking about where to set my story, I really wanted to sort of bring this part of old Singapore to life. Um, because, you know, most tourists now would never see it. Um, many Singaporeans now have never actually seen a kilo or been on one. Um, Same so, as Smith Island in many ways. Yeah, yeah. So I really wanted to sort of preserve that a little bit and, like, you know, share that with the world because I'm not sure how long more they'll last because fish farming is much easier and much more lucrative these days. And much less quaint and, and um, historical. Read from your story first, please. Okay. And, and and choose any section you like and, and then put it in the context of uh, the larger story, that uh, the larger piece, and, and then I'll ask you some questions about it. And would you be willing to take some questions from the audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this, is a, this is a, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of the story, and it kind of describes what life is like on a kilom, usually. Um, and this is from both what I observed and also, you know, I was a reporter for many years, so, um, you know, I went out and visited one of these kilos and spent some time on there. Um, and, you know, it was actually, it was fascinating. We took like a million photos. 
Um, so, um, so this is just a little bit from the... the Cheryl's story is, is the first story of part two, which is subtitled Love, parentheses, or something like it. <laughs> yeah. Ami knew how, how it would end even before they appeared. The Nibong holes would have long been in place, a wooden labyrinth designed to attract and confuse. He imagined their hearts racing, surges of blood pumping through, adrenaline pushing, pulling them further into the buttery blackness, panic steering them along the rows of columns. They would sense then that it was too late. Even so, there was nothing left to do but swim, just keep swimming. It carried reassurance, even if false. By the time the nets closed in, snuggling them together in a tight, slippery ball, there was no more point in trying. This was stupid daydreaming, Ameng's mom would always say. Fish so stupid, where got brains to think? The woman had a point, and the truth of that was what kept the family in business. Not good business, mind you. Fish farming was becoming far more practical and lucrative than kelong fishing these days. But to start a new fish farm, expensive law. Maybe when Along came back from Queensland with his Atas business degree, then they could discuss. For now, with the kelong that Hong Kong set up years ago, the family managed to catch enough each month to pass the time. Not good, not bad, just can love. Just can. That was what Ameng's days were, one flowing to the next. His only relief came one Sunday. Ameng was squatting on the jetty after a late breakfast smoking a cigarette, trying to see how long he could pull on it, how long he could get the ash to last before it fell off in one long tube. He was getting better at it, almost reaching one and a half centimeters, which made him feel a bit proud of love, even if no one noticed or cared. Life in the Kelong is just like that, he had learned in a year. If you don't notice the small things, there's nothing to notice at all. And nothing actually does happen later. It's not <laughs> just pages of nothingness. Yes. As the story continues, um, without giving too much of it away, uh, the Kelong, <coughs> and there's Mr. Tom Linthicum, former Metro editor of the Kelong. Tom once told me to take down my Elvis shrine in the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, as the story continues, um, as Cheryl's described it, you're tricking these fish into a trap. And there's this 22-year-old young man. He, he, you described him more as a boy than a man, particularly mm -hmm. in his relationship to his mother. Um, two young girls, not even women, come along. And I was wondering uh, if you could speak to, uh, as, the, as, as, as the writer, if the metaphor of the Kelong was in place for these young girls as well. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, because uh, the guy, the protagonist who is on uh, this Kelong is so, um, you know, that's his job, the trap. Um, you know, that's, his, that's what he does every day. And so it was sort of that um, sinister setting for, you know, when these girls come along. So, um, and I have a sister, so it was actually very easy for me to write um, the two girls. <laughs> I just, I, actually, my, uh, when my sister wrote it, like the, the way I described the, young, the smaller one, um, she looked exactly like my sister at that age, so. I mean, it almost sounds like the Singapore deliverance <laughs> in a certain way, you know? All you're missing is the Singapore banjo. Yeah, the Singapore banjo music, you know? Um, is this story, Possibly the basis for a novel. Um, possibly, I actually, I, I thought about. Um, I started with this story with the idea of the, the setting, but also um, the 
the stronger characters to me, maybe because I'm female, um, were the two girls. And um, so they were the ones I was really thinking of um, at first. So um, when I finished writing it, I wanted to know more about them. And so I might actually write more about them. Um, because this was my first noir story. Um, you know, I had started this book really wanting to write, um, you know, an unusual book about Singapore because, and show, you know, a side of Singapore that people hadn't really seen before or thought about much before. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, noir, I, I love noir, and this happened to be a part of it. Um, but I've never really written it before, so I might do more of it now. I don't know. I'm, I'm just starting, you know, the push into fiction right now. Well, yeah, were you thrilled by the freedom that fiction gave you, given your journalistic background? Yeah, I mean, I spent uh, I spent all these years, uh, you know, almost 20 years now, like, trying to make sure that I'm not getting sued by people because I guess they're wrong. <laughs> um, so it was great to be able to sit down and go, okay, well, you know, it's take a kernel of truth or, you know, something and just kind of run with it and see where it goes. So um, so that's been a lot of fun. I just, um, after uh, after this, I, I, I finished my, uh, the first draft of my novel, um, which, um, which was hugely exciting for me because, you know, here it's like a short story and, you know, there it's like, you know, I get to take characters and kind of blow them up in situations and everything, so. Where does the novel take place? In Singapore as well. So. Has it been accepted? Uh, my agent's uh, excited about it. They're about to take it to market. That's a good first so, start. Yeah. It's, it, it, they haven't shopped it yet. <laughs> no, no, no. The book industry being what it is, uh, my, my first publisher, um, Hyperion, um, which is owned by Disney, decided to not publish adult books anymore. So they're doing only children's books. So I'm just released. <laughs> but that's, that's fine, you know. So you've got a protagonist whose job is to track fish. And two young girls wander into his trap, so to speak. How did you put yourself in the mind of a male predator? Hmm. Well, I have, um, I have a, I, I tried to think about, I've never been a 22 year old man, so <laughs> it, uh, it took some, uh, some imagination, but, uh, but I was also sort of talking to, you know, talking to friends, like, uh, you know, when you're 22, like, what are you, you know, what do you do? What are you obsessed with? What do you do when you have nothing to do? And in Singapore, what you do, unfortunately, is smoke a lot. Um, and uh, because uh, when you're right after, um, right after high school, you have to do mandatory like two and a half years of army. And, uh, and Did you? Uh, no, 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 the guys have to do it. Oh. And so when you're doing that, like the guy, even if you don't go into smoke, you usually come out smoking because there's nothing to do. If you're on sentry duty for like, you know, however long you, end up smoking like just chain smoking the whole weekend. So um, so little details like that I picked up from talking to my friends. It was good reporting. Yeah. <laughs> well, how about some questions from the audience? Sokolo? Well, to Westerners, the most famous place in Singapore is uh, Raffles Hotel, mm -hmm. which is this old hotel started in the 19th century by the British uh, expatriate. I was wondering whether any of the noir stories in your book uh, take place in Raffles Hotel. Uh, one of them does actually. The, the last, the very last story, which is a which is a really fun story, which is an odd word to use with noir, but um, it's it's a uh, it's kind of this fast-paced um, fun story, and and there there's there. Wait a minute, Murder on Orchard Road mm -hmm. is a fun story. Yeah, I know, I know. And there's a significant <laughs> scene in, in the Raffles, I believe, and um and um and it's a um, no, it's a story about if you ever visit Singapore, it's like the most beautiful hotel there, and um, you know, everyone, Rudyard Kipling used to hang out there, um, and uh, it's where like, you know, everybody, the who's who of Singapore hung out in like the 19th century, and, and now still, um, and, um, and so it's a beautiful hotel, you 
say that we should try to save it. But um, that story is actually one of my favorites in the book because I know I'm not supposed to have favorites because they're all much more, but um, but it's a uh, it's a uh, because it, it features a uh, my favorite protagonist in the book besides my own, of course. Um, the uh, this feng shui guy who's a feng shui master, and typically in Singapore, something bad has happened in the room. Like you bring in a feng shui master to kind of cleanse it. Like you move the furniture around so the chi is good. That's what they did on Calvary Street, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted people to cleanse it. <laughs> different guy. Yeah, different guy. <laughs> Occasional exorcism. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, so this guy is a feng shui master who turns into kind of a detective because he walks in and he goes, wait a minute. What happened here? And he kind of figures things out. Um, so it's it's kind of a, a, a neat story. It's a fa fascinating character, and that's the other thing. Um, I love all these characters in here because they're so uniquely Singaporean way, and the settings are so great. Like one of them is set in the Chinese temple, and the main character is a is the temple medium, who's a who's a woman in her thirties, who her job is to channel the monkey god spirit and tell people how to live their lives. And uh, that actually does happen in Singapore. And uh, another guy is a, is a taxi uncle. Uh, we call everyone uncle in Singapore. So you get into a cab, you call him uncle. And uh, is a taxi uncle who, uh, there's a lovely detail in here about a guy, about him keeping the bone of a dead child um, in his taxi cab. Um, you wanted to read from that story, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, well, that's, I'll, that's I'll, I'll let it explain itself. But it's sort of these little things are very uniquely Singaporean. So they make the stories kind of pop, I think. Akon had a tiny wooden coffin in his cab, about four inches long, carved in a Chinese style, with the graceful sweeps and arcs that differentiated it from modern Western caskets. He had it in a glove compartment most of the time, but at night it rode on the dashboard, his silent passenger, the thing that watched his back because so much can go wrong at night. The thing that watched his back and any passenger who understood would be fairly warned. Those who understood would know that in that little scaled-down coffin was the bone of a dead child, somewhat difficult to come by now because of cremation, but more common in the days of burial and when child, child mortality was still high. That bone in its coffin kept the child spirit with the owner. Both were bound to each other. Both were master and servant. Ahmed had inherited that coffin from his father, and so now the child spirit that once followed his father followed him to do his bidding on the condition that Ahwat took care of it. Ahwat sometimes made a show of it in a way that Christians sometimes like to say grace loudly in public. When he ate, he would order two meals or two cups of coffee. He would pay for both, but consume only one. Those who did not understand would simply think he had been stood up, probably by an inconsiderate child or an unfaithful mainland Chinese girlfriend, only interested in him as a meal ticket or for his central provident fund savings. <coughs> Those who understood knew that he was feeding his child spirit, and the waiters who knew would keep their distance from the apparently uneaten meal to only clear it later when it was safe. And that was why Ahwat never let a fare sit in the front passenger seat. It was already occupied. You have do, to figure out what happens. do you find out who the child was at some point? Uh, uh, well, we're going to read the story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what she means as a writer, she means you have to find it. <laughs> Over here? Yes, sir. Um, I have the article that in the Sunday Sun paper that um, I don't cover a lot of things like that for book reviews. And, and when you gave a uh, review, um, they, they asked you questions about the book and all. Uh, and you said something really interesting. You said, it turns out that both the top speech <laughs> and the fashion reporting that you did on uh, war zones. The 
Um, my first job was covering Sunday Pops, which I loved. Um, and um, it was always very exciting. I worked with some of the best people. Um, Dick Irwin was amazing. Um, and the late, uh, great Dick Irwin. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I learned so much from him. He used to terrify me. I used to come in. He would come in at 4 o'clock. He listens to the police scan all the time, right? And then he would come in at 4 o'clock, and I'd be on, sh on, you know, I'd be at the desk since, like, 8 a.m., and he would be like, did you get the one about the three nuns getting killed? I'm like, what, three nuns? <laughs> and he's like, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, Dick was a sweetheart. I know, I know. Do you have any good Edmund stories? Oh, plenty. <laughs>
was in support of this. Um, but I was very excited to include sort of uh, the best of Singapore, range of voices, um, the playwrights in here, um, as well as, you know, the, the British novelist and um, SJ has a wonderful story in here. Um, American food writer Monica Bidet, I don't know if you know her, um, but um, she, she's, this is her first fiction story in here. Yeah. You know, all countries have parts of their culture that are considered stereotypes. One of the ones of Japan is that they think they're better than everybody else. What would the stereotype of the typical, whether true or not, of, or a kernel truth of folks from Singapore be? Um, I think that the, um, and you'll see this in some of the stories too, I think it's, it's sort of the uh, obsession with being number one, or <laughs> we call it our, our primary uh, national trait that a lot of people have. Um, we call it being kiasu, which means you're afraid to lose. So you're so afraid to lose that you push yourself to like, you know, fight harder or, or you know. Um, and so, so some of the characters in here, there is some little bit of sort of that, um, you know, desperation, not desperation, but you know, sort of that urge to claw up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Someone else? Y yes, sure. Uh, I have been in Singapore for a full seven days, huh. but uh, there was a Sunday and we were driving by the botanical garden and I saw a lot of South Asian people standing there, very pretty, maybe mm -hmm. under smoking. Oh. <laughs> I asked somebody, who are they? What are they doing there? And they said, they are Bangladeshis. Mm -hmm. They speak Bangla, which is my language as well. Oh. And they, are, uh, they get a break, <coughs> half a day, on Sundays, and they all come where they can talk to others in Bangla. Yeah. And I wondered if anybody has thought of doing a noir story <laughs> about these people. <laughs> very, very hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have a short break. Yeah. But you tell Johnny we need a Bangladesh noir. I know. I don't think it's up here. I know. I know. I'll email them right away. No, none of these stories are set there, unfortunately. Um, although that's a fascinating subculture in Singapore. Um, uh, they, you know, a lot of foreign workers there, um, and you know, they sort of, they congregate um, in various places. Uh, the Filipino maids uh, congregate outside a particular shopping mall. They have picnics there every Sunday, um, and um, and so you get these gigantic groups of people. Um, there are, however, two stories in here about um, maids, um, which is a which is a has been a big topic in Singapore recently because um, there've been a lot of um, stories of maid abuse. Um, you know, it's a, the government has made it very uh, inexpensive to have um, to have permanent help in your home. So you can pay as little as you know four hundred U.S. dollars a month to um, to have actually less than that two hundred like two to three hundred to four hundred U.S. dollars a month to have live-in help to be your full-time nanny and cook for you and everything. And um, and they're not they're often not treated very well because they're only required to give two off days a month. And so um, you know employers you know it's, it's a employers. Very often, sort of exploit that a little bit, and uh, that's been that's been popping up in the news recently. And there are two stories in here that talk about different aspects of that a little bit. Um, and a lot of the other stories here are also very topical. Um, you know, uh, there have been a whole bunch of sex scandals in Singapore recently, and one of the stories was inspired by one of the sex scandals. Um, and uh, sort of there's a there's a lot of tension between expats. The expat population is booming in Singapore, uh, which has changed a lot of neighborhoods vastly. Um, and um, and so that's kind of discussed in one of the other stories as well. So it's it's a very you know it's a real current snapshot of a of a of a little country. What is the caste system in Singapore? Who's at the top and who's on the bottom? 
Well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, everyone, we, we, all the races are supposed to be the same. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and other fairy tales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it, it's funny, but, um, you know, it's funny when my, my friends and I have talked about it, sort of observe our, the young women um, and the bar dating culture. Um, you know, if you're Caucasian, like that's sort of the, you know, the, the holy grail of like who you want to date still. Mm-hmm. I guess it's the same everywhere. <laughs> or, you know. Oh, the girls want to date Caucasian men? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But And who's on the bottom, like, would the bottom of the caste system be these people that are living in hell? Uh, they, the living in hell, uh, they, 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 they don't, they don't get to have, uh, they don't get to go out and have much of a social life, so you don't see as much of, sort of, date, them dating other No, no, not dating, just yeah. where are they drawn from? What, oh. what population are, oh, the, are um, they from? Oh, they're coming from uh, the Philippines, Indonesia. Um, immigrants. Yeah, immigrants. So, someone else? Yes, sir. How does uh, Singapore compare to Hong Kong? You think about uh, another island in culture, but mm-hmm. noir. I, I think there may be one uh, from Hong Kong noir. I don't know who it is. Um, not yet, I think. But the, one of my writers, at, uh, the the publisher has asked him if he would do it, and I'm really hoping he does. Um, he was the one who wrote the Feng Shui Master story, um, and um, but um, he's a great writer, but. Singapore and Hong Kong are very different. They're, um, Singapore is very densely populated, whereas Hong Kong is a little bit more spread out. I mean, you have, you know, Kowloon and uh, Hong Kong Island and some places that are, you know, people are on top of each other. But then you go out to the parts of Hong Kong that are closer to the border of China, and it's like, you know, vast amounts of greenery, um, farms. Um, so you have a little bit of both. Um, whereas Singapore is very much more built up, um, very modern. Every time I go back, there's like bits of Singapore that have been wiped out to like build another skyscraper. So it's um, it's a little sad. Let's take like one or two more questions, and then uh, sure we'll be happy to sign a book. When I was a student in Hong Kong, there were several Singaporean students uh, there with me, and uh, one of the things that all the uh, male Singaporeans would discuss was, as you alluded to, national service. Did that mm-hmm. play a role in any of the stories? Because it seemed my discussions with them to be a very large part of especially the young male culture in Singapore is having done you know where did you do it with the police or with the with the army and did that at all factor in? Yeah, um they're, they're not um they're not overtly in any of the stories. Um that my my uh my main character has just emerged from the army so he, there's a there's talk of his time in the army a little bit um and just sort of you know just sort of the habits that he picked up there and um, just sort of this sense of uh, slight discombobulation after you know having spent two and a half years in the army, um, and if you're in the Singaporean army, you're not really doing a whole lot, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so you know uh, two and a half years of kind of not doing a whole lot, and then being released into the world, and you know how do you kind of cope? So um, so I guess it's addressed a little bit there, but um, but in the other um, stories, the characters tend to be a little older, um, and the women don't go to the army, so you know it's it's not. It's not there as much. Are there any Muslim in elements into these stories? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a part of a, one of the stories I set is in a, the part of Singapore that's closest to the causeway uh, that links us to Malaysia. So, um, so that part there's a there's a one of the, the main character in fact is a is a Malay guy. So um, there's a, and there's some sort of discussion of Malay culture in there. Yes, ma'am. I've been to Singapore a few times because my sister lives there. Yeah. Social interactions between uh, there is probably a lot 
can we just say, well, we don't speak their language, and we were in a Chinese restaurant, and they kept speaking in English because they couldn't, you know, the Chinese owner wanted to speak in Chinese, and we said, we don't speak that. So I wanted to know a little bit about the Singapore Chinese. Yeah, well, Singapore is 70% Chinese, and um, when the British arrived in 1819, um, and all these traders that are coming from China and India and everywhere, um, the British basically said, okay, the, the big language is, you know, we're, we're going to try not speak English. And, and when uh, Singapore became independent, they said, well, that's the first language. So in school, that's the first language we learned. And then I had to learn Mandarin. Um, so I don't know Malay beyond having to order food at a hawker center. Um, but, and like chit-chatting with my friends a little bit. But, um, but beyond that, like, we wouldn't be able to have a meaningful conversation. It would take place in English. Um, but there is a lot of integration. There, I mean, there are some schools that are, um, you know, if you want to focus on Chinese studies, there's like Chinese school. If you want to focus on Malay studies, there's a Malay school. But, um, but generally, they've tried to integrate everyone um, pretty, pretty well. When I was in first grade, like, I had friends of all races in my classes. And then, you know, we, we would just sort of peel off when we had to go to our language classes, and that was it. Um, but, it was, and, you know, you, you kind of see that. There's a lot of mingling. So. Is there intermarriage? Yeah, there is. Um, and you're starting to see that a lot more now. I mean, same with the states, I guess. Um, so that's, you know, it's, um, so that's heartening. One last question. And then we got some reporters, but not you, South Well, you've already asked one. Ms. <laughs> <laughs> Desmond? All right, South Floyd, back to you. There's one uh, Singapore political leader that everyone here has heard of, <laughs> Lee Kuan Yew. Is he a figure in any of these stories? <laughs> what, do Singapore, what do Singapore people think of him? Uh, well, you'll never see him for it, that's what I'll say. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he, he's basically the person who created modern Singapore and turned it from, you know, a tiny dot, we call it a little red dot, the, you know, the country's a little red dot, into, you know, one of the Asian tigers, tiger colonies. And, um, and um, you know it's it's so wealthy now that um, one of the Facebook founders gave up his U.S. citizenship and became Singaporean because he wanted to park his wealth there. Um, and so it's uh, so basically he set all these things in place. Um, you know, creative school system. Singapore math is being taught all over the world now, um, and um, people credit with him with making Singapore what it is today. Um, at the same time, you know that didn't come with without its price, and you know a lot of. Um, Singlet is going through something, it's exploding a little bit right now because there's a new generation of writers who are daring to be a little bit more expressive. But the old guard is, um, is uh, was very mindful of censorship, um, which is ever-present in Singapore. You can be sued for like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If, if you... If by the government. By the government. If you criticize the government, you can be, can you be in prison? You can be, you'll, you'll likely be sued uh, more than anything else. So, um, you know, so no one really dares to kind of take on, or even write about uh, characters who might seem like, you know, they're uh, caricatures of him. Um, so you don't really see that as much. Um, which is why some of us are hoping, you know, if, if more writers transition and are able to be published in other countries, maybe there'll be less of that fear. Um, because the writers over there are, the young writers are trying to push the envelope a little bit, um, which is great to see. Um, but, you know, they're still getting beaten down by their publishers because the publishers don't want to get in trouble. You know. So having said that, was this book vetted uh, to prevent um, lawsuits? Uh, I was very, I was, you know, I was, I, 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 if anyone had written about Lee Kuan Yew in it, I would have been very happy. 
Um, but, uh, but no one did. Um, and, uh, but this was published by an American publisher first. So you know, I, I didn't even think about how it would fly in Singapore at all. I was determined to not think about it. Um, I wanted these writers to, to write freely, as freely as they could. So I said, you know, just keep in mind, it's going to be published in America first. And, um, so, and a lot of them wrote much more daring stories than they usually write, um, which, is, which I thought was great. So I'm hoping it's kind of a, a new step, um, you know, which is nice to see. All right, Cheryl Tan. Cheryl will be uh, signing books up here, I believe, or, yeah. okay, and Greg will be bringing some books up.